Whether you're a polyamateur or polyambitious, polyambiguous or polyam, I really hold your head high. Let your freaky flag fly, cause your polyamory should be uncensored. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. Welcome to episode 76, where we're talking with Amy about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. So, Amy, who are you? Oh, who am I? I'm 37 years old. I'm a wife, a mother. And I am a, well, I'm not a doctoral student anymore. I do have my doctorate now. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> nice. Yay, go me. Um, so I have my PhD in educational psychology, and I took a focus in special education with that. Um, kind of amused from my kids. Um, my kids, myself, we all have autism in varying degrees. So uh, it only made sense to me that I wanted to study in depth um, our, I don't want to call it disease or disorder, but our diagnosis. So um, everything in my life kind of revolves around autism. All right. Sometimes we also add on to that. Um, how do you identify or what kind of like labels do you use, if any? Oh, um, I, I mean, my pronouns are she, hers. I'll, you know, I definitely identify as a woman. And I typically don't ask people to worry about the whole doctor thing. Like, that's just, those are just fancy letters that let me get a job. <laughs> that's really all it is. And a lot of people get real um, bougie about that. Call me doctor. Nah, not here. All right. So what does polyamory mean to you? Oh, oh, all the love. All the love in any way, shape, or form. Um, especially for me because I am pansexual. So everybody all the time is <laughs> great. What drew you to polyamory? I kind of always felt that it was there, but I feel like this is the age old story of growing up in that small Baptist town and not being able to act on anything. And if you weren't monogamous, you know, get the hell out. Um, so I just kind of stuffed it in and I married my high school sweetheart and 15 years into our marriage, we're like, hey, we can't stuff this in anymore. And we don't live in that little town anymore. So how about we just be ourselves? And I like the idea of being able to expand your love. Like the heart isn't just this finite amount of love that you have. It grows just like when you have children, that your heart just gets bigger. Why not the same with partners? Doesn't didn't make sense not to me. Pie. Yes, it's not by. Um, so what, if anything, do you find difficult about polyamory? Ooh, scheduling. <laughs> Definitely the scheduling. Um, outside of that, communication styles. And that is partly because of my autism. Um, everybody has a different communication style anyway. Um, but when you add in the inability to read everybody's facial expressions or understand sarcasm fully, it gets a little complicated. 
and um, and then trying to then relay my communications with some partners, with other partners. It doesn't always translate very well, so um, it can be a struggle. So when did you know or begin to identify as polyamorous? I started acting upon polyamory in 2018, I think it was, somewhere around there, uh, is when we actually, uh, quote-unquote, opened our marriage. Um, Of course, now I don't like that term, but that's when I actually finally started uh, looking for other partners. Of course, that doesn't happen naturally, easily, whatever, but um, it wasn't too long after that. So, yeah, about 2018. Right. Um, when, if ever, would you say that you felt different from other people? <laughs> My entire life. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I was always the weird one. But um, my parents uh, literally would beat me into masking. What we call masking is just putting on that social mask to make it look like you're normal. Uh, and again, I hate that word normal, but uh, quote unquote normal in that I was not allowed to stim. I was not allowed to um, flap my arms, walk on my toes. They actually got like orthotic devices to keep me from toe walking. And it just got worse. Like as school just went on and on and I'd get bullied for things and they'd just be like, well, then stop doing X, Y, Z. Like that's, that's, but that's me. That's, that's who I am at my very core. And Uh, It just kind of snowballed from there. And that's why we left that little town. (laughs) That seems like a good plan. Yeah. Uh, Where are you on your poly journey? In what regards? Well, a lot of folks uh, will talk about maybe where they began, right, in their poly journey. And then um, kind of if they are where they want to be. And then also our, our, our follow-up question to that is, do you have any poly goals or where do you hope to go? So, um, I guess, uh, yeah, where, where are you in your poly journey is a, is a weird question, but just kind of a, a, an opener to do you have any plans? Um, like, are you happy with you... where your poly life is now? Yeah. Are there uh, things that you yes. are hoping it will evolve into? Do you have a lot of partners? Well, and do you want more <laughs> or less or whatever? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that, okay, yeah, I see where this is going. Uh, when we first started, Polly, um, it seemed like the goal was to gather as many as you can. It was like Pokemon. Got to catch them all. There was, just, <laughs> <laughs> there was just this excitement of holy crap, I'm attracted to you and I'm allowed to be attracted to you now. This is fantastic. And suddenly my Google calendar started filling up, but the names were never the same. Um, Actually, there was one name that stayed consistent, but it wasn't the same person. It's just I have an affinity for guys with that name. It just is a thing. (laughs) Anyway, uh, now a few years into it, well, I should back up. We got into a very serious relationship a quad relationship. Uh, my husband and I were dating together another married couple. And we actually were serious enough to the point we became polyfidelitous for a bit. And we're making plans to merge households and have the um, the unicorn of a, of a poly farm that everybody talks about. Everybody wants that poly farm, a little commune. And we we're going to, we we're doing it. We actually even started remodeling our house. Um, mental illness got in the way. And the quad broke up, and that's okay. I can now see that that's made everybody better. Everybody's healthier now. And it took a few months to get back into dating. So this happened November last year. Mm -hmm. And in February this year, I I started dating again. 
a little bit. I was very nervous because for a year and a half, I had basically centered my entire life around these three people and all of our kids. Now I have obviously my husband, he's my anchor partner, and he is absolutely my person. I've known him for 25 years. And yeah, um, I have one serious boyfriend and as luck would have it, he literally lives like a mile away. We've been living near each other for years and not known it. It's insane. Uh, and I do have another boyfriend that's a little less on the serious side. Not sure where that's going. And I, I am polysaturated. <laughs> like, I just cannot with everything else handle anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. No, there's nothing wrong with that. We just, what well, we're, we're just trying to get at like, is your life the way you want it to be more or less? It's pretty darn close is almost to the point where I'm perfectly, perfectly content with everything. Um, My one serious boyfriend and I are trying to see each other more often. Um, Scheduling obviously gets in the way, but I think if he and I could get that increase a little bit more then I'd probably be in that perfect content zone. I'd like this. Um, so our follow-up question is often, where do you hope to go? But I feel like we sort of merged all of those questions in together. Uh, so I'm going to jump ahead to the next question, which is, so why are you Polly? <laughs> why am I Polly? Be- I mean, I, I love everybody. <laughs> it's it's kind of just always been natural to me to meet somebody, develop this relationship with them, and to love them. And that's always been in a platonic sense. And I, you know, even some of them now are still in more of that platonic sense. I have some exes that I'm very good friends with in the same way. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it allows me to let all of my love out in different ways. The way I love my husband is very different from the way I love one boyfriend, very different from the way I love another boyfriend. It gets back to those love languages. We all have different ones, different meshes and I can actually express all of my love languages out amongst all three of them. And I finally just feel like I'm in that, that good place where I am. I'm like a bright, shiny flower of love. (laughs) Oh, yay. And our last question is, uh, why did you agree to be interviewed today? Uh, You actually messaged me though. So why did you message us to be interviewed? Which I I love. That's my favorite. (laughs) That's my favorite when people bring their themselves onto the podcast. (laughs) So, um, I actually came to you because nobody else has touched this topic that I've found. And I've been studying it for so long. I'm living it. I'm raising it. And I see on like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everywhere, people are always asking questions. How do I do X, Y, and Z in polyamory? You know, I'm polyamorous, but I have autism and I suck at relationships or I can't do this. I can't do that. And I just, there needs to be more. It's it's a newer topic. I understand that. And we're finding more people in our community are neurodivergent and there has to be something for them to something to look back on, to listen to, to read something. And in that aspect, I am starting a book on the neurodivergence in the poly community. It's slow going though. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Oh, we'll definitely, we'll definitely want to talk about your book because that's really cool. Uh, I mean, yeah, even absolutely. if it's not like, you know, going to be published in the next month or two. <laughs> we <still are. laughs> We're going to go on a quick break and we will be right back. Hey there. 
interested in more polyamory uncensored content you're in luck we just started a blog polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com we're going to be showcasing stuff like episode breakdowns polyamory and ethical non-monogamy related book reviews and guest posts from authors like you if you'd like to be a guest author contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com and you might be able to see your work up on our website Again, that's polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com, and we're going to have some fun, new, poly-related content for you. Thanks. See you there. And we're back, uh, and we're going to talk today with Amy about neurodiversity and neurodivergence or neuroatypical um, issues relating to polyamory. So just to start us off, in case folks don't know or haven't heard these words, um, and I mean, they're pretty new to me. And like you're saying, it's becoming a lot more popular to talk about, but it's relatively, I would say within the last five years, pretty new. Um, And so what is neurodiversity? Neurodiversity is, in the most plain terms, it's when your brain just doesn't function in the same way as others. And to break that down a little bit more, mostly when you think of neurodiversity, autism does come to mind and the way that they navigate the world does not look the same way to those who are neurotypical. So neurotypical is your, I hate the word normal, but there it is, normal functioning brain. Um, And then it it really is hard to just narrow it down, but just how we navigate things, mostly social interactions is where you see it the most. Sure. What struggles are unique to like neuroatypical folks? Um, typical struggles would be uh, reading social cues, um, navigating um, public functions, uh, even as simple as like going to the grocery store, going to the bank can be a struggle. Um, everybody's got different levels of struggles with that, but um, I'm trying to think of a good example suddenly at length. Um, so like going to the grocery store, it could be as simple as like the cashier next to you or the next aisle over has just opened and they like wave you over and you're like, wait, what, what was that? Why are they waving their hand in the air? I don't get it. And suddenly you just sort of like have a miniature panic attack or you just completely blank out and uh, dis- dissociate. So, um and then some of the struggles are are super funny. Like when you're driving in a car and somebody flips you off for cutting them off and you're just like, la, 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 la. I don't really care. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so my question is, um, I imagine that that would be challenging for having relationships, but also for people who um, are potentially interested in a relationship with someone who happens to have autism or have some other neo uh, neurodiverse condition that makes them process information a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And do you have advice for those people? Oh, always communication, whether you have the autism or, well, I don't want to just say autism, whether you're neurodiverse or neurotypical, talk, talk, talk. And that'll be my answer for literally everything. <laughs> um, because if you, if you're looking to potentially start a relationship with somebody who is neurodiverse, you're not just going to want to assume that, oh, I'm a good person. I'm a tolerant person. I love everybody. I'll figure this out. I guarantee you're setting yourself up to fail and you're just going to have issues in that relationship. Um, Ask them questions like, 
what what are those little uh, things that we call pet peeves? Neurotypical people call them pet peeves, but they are very real anxiety inducing triggers for people like myself who are on the spectrum. And it could be, and when I say simple, I do literally mean simple, like um, all of my soup can labels have to be facing the same direction. When I load the dishwasher, everything has to be in a specific position. I will absolutely lose my collective shit if not. And it, it sounds funny. It sounds cute. It's really painful because every nerve in our body goes on high alert. It's that uh, fight, flight, or freeze. And that happens every time we get a trigger. Um, and then if you're somebody who is neurodiverse and looking to be in a relationship, there's some onus there to let your partner know what's going on. Um, or even years down the road, I have found, you know, my husband and I have been married almost 20 years and there's still things that we're finding out um, bother me, trigger me, because most of us, you know, we're just, we're now adults. We were told as children to suppress these things. So now that we're actually allowing them to come out, we're discovering them and just letting them know, hey, this really bothered me. This is upsetting. Uh, for some people, they need deep pressure stimulation. So uh, last week I had an incident where I had a panic attack and I text my husband. He was downstairs in his uh, game room. I said, I need you to come upstairs and I need you to cuddle me in bed. And I didn't need to explain myself. It didn't matter. He just knew I had a need. I communicated it. There it was. And that's what I needed. But there are times there, <laughs> there are times when it's the opposite. I don't want to be touched. And for a lot of us, that's more often the case than the deep pressure. We don't want to be touched. We're the ones that we don't like to cuddle in our sleep because and it's nothing against our partners. And I think a lot of people do take that personally. Like, why don't you want to cuddle me? I thought you loved me. I do. I just don't want to touch you right now. So just it all comes back to communication. Ask questions. Never be afraid to ask questions. I would be more offended by somebody assuming they could just Google the answer to what makes me me than just talking to me about it. Are there any particular questions you would suggest? Like, if you don't know what you don't know, it's sometimes hard to figure out what to ask. Let's see. I would imagine some good questions would would be... You could start with um, asking them if it takes them time to create responses to questions. And because uh, not all of us are very good at just having this normal conversation. Uh, so like if you ever hear me get flustered or my mind blank, it's because I probably should have taken a moment to think of my answer before just opening my hole and letting something fly out. Uh, ask them if, oh gosh, certain foods bother them. Like if you're planning this cute romantic date and you want to take them out to a seafood restaurant, but the texture of seafood makes them gag, that's, that's going to be a pretty big deal. So uh, surprises really aren't our forte until you get to know us. Um, and same thing with like environmental stimuli. I had my, my boyfriend took me to the uh, Indy racetrack here not that long ago. And I was really concerned about the noise because I am very sensitive to noises and lights. Um, and he was so sweet. He brought uh, headphones for me and I ended up not needing them, but understand, you know, and he talked to me about it. He understood it. He listened. And then on top of that, he brought the headphones, you know, to help me out so that we could still enjoy the date because that's an important thing for him and helping me out with the stimuli. So um, 
yeah, that's that's probably a good place to start anyway. Do you think it's easier for like neuroatypical people to date other neuroatypical people or does it make it more complicated? <laughs> um, you know, I want to say it's almost the same because you're going to communicate either way. Whether a partner of mine is neurotypical or neurodiverse, their love languages are still their love languages. And the way they communicate is the way they communicate. And um, it it almost doesn't matter what the motivation is behind their behaviors or preferences. It's, it's all going to work out the same way. I wonder if they would have a better understanding, though, because I know even just with you, you know, your example of going to a grocery store and someone waves you over and you might not know what that wave means, um, that might say I was in line behind that person, I might not register that there's a problem because my brain doesn't work that way. Right. And so in a relationship that could be a, a, a huge issue, something could happen. that's a huge issue. And then that neurotypical person is like, I don't understand what's happening. I do not know why there's a problem. And yeah. um, whereas maybe another person who doesn't necessarily have that exact trigger, but knows what a trigger is and has experienced them might have a little bit better understanding and being like, okay, well, I don't feel this way, but I totally get why you feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. So they'll know um, what I'm feeling physically and mentally, even if it's not the same trigger, uh, if they're neurodiverse. Um, My husband, on the other hand, he still is able to display the same amount of empathy because he's been with me for so long and I get very descriptive with him when I explain my triggers, you know, that the, it feels like all of my nerve endings are on fire and my, my brain goes fuzzy. And I do use these very descriptive words for him to understand that this isn't just me having a nervous tick or me being, you know, paranoid or whatever you want to call it. This is me actually being in physical and emotional and mental pain and, now he's able to display that empathy. My other partners are still working on it. But, you know, again, we've been together for 20 years and he knows my facial expressions. He knows when I'm in pain. Um, but yes, he doesn't know exactly what it feels like to have every nerve ending feel like it's going to fry any moment. Um, but he can, he can understand. And that's why yeah, he knows it's very vivid. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to like dating and um, especially polyamorous dating, a lot of us folks in the community do have to like come out or choose to in your dating profile as like polyamorous or queer or whatever labels you might use. Um, do you do you feel like neurodivergent folks should also include that, or is that something that's like super private? It's it's you know it's medical, right? And and yeah. we talk about this on other um, episodes. Like when do you disclose? Yes, that is a very, very common question I see in the groups a lot. Um, I do not put it on my dating profile because the stigma around autism is still so extreme. Um, there, you know, if, if I put it on there, then, for example, anybody coming across my profile might assume I'm some somebody who's nonverbal, that I'm not toilet trained. I mean, all and, and again, when most people think autism, they're not thinking autistic adults. They're thinking autistic children, such as my own, who aren't potty trained, aren't verbal, flap, they talk or they walk on their toes. And that's not me. So if it's not me, I'm not going to put it on that profile. Usually I disclose when it comes to uh, making that first date. And this is why. I really struggle with eye contact. It is probably my most 
obvious symptom of them all. I, I don't even, I don't even look my children in the eye very often. It's very hard. So when I'm making plans for, you know, a first date, I'll say, Hey, by the way, I'm really bad at eye contact. It's not you. I don't want you to think that it's just, you know, I have autism and I'll let it go from there. They either get freaked out and ghost me and that's fine. I dodged a bullet or they're like, that's cool. I do too. Or that's cool. I'm probably not going to be looking at your eyes anyway, you know, cause they're gross, <laughs> but <laughs> let's, let's be real here. We're adults. And, uh, but that's usually the point I disclose. And uh, I know eye contact's a big thing for the majority of us. Uh, so that, and that makes a great segue into disclosing. And then at that point, if you're making a first date, chances are you've probably made a little bit of a connection and now you want to meet in person. So I think that's that's probably a good time for that person to decide, well, is this connection enough for me to potentially date somebody autistic? Right. Or at least go on the date and find out how that works for me, whether it's a connection, you know, how like the connection is obviously much bigger than a question of neurodiversity or not. It, but right. where do we fit? Does it feel like something that I want to pursue? Right. Exactly. And then you can go Google it. <laughs> no, no Googling. Just talk to me. <laughs> well, I, I was speaking, joking. Uh, speaking <laughs> about like stigma, I mean, I think that would have to be a pretty big um, part about like dating. I wonder yeah. also if, if certain words are like, um, you, like, like trigger words that will make someone, you know, swipe. I can't, I don't do tender. <laughs> what is the, what's the, what's the no right? Right. I don't know. Sw swipe uh, left, right? I, whatever. Swipe no. Swipe no. <laughs> swipe no. Um, you know, like, do you think that someone reading autism versus neurodiverse or neuroatypical is going to be a big difference, hmm. even though they're kind of umbrella terms, like they, they fit yeah. together? I, I think the word autism or autistic would probably more likely cause them to swipe uh, whatever direction it is for, for no. No, thank you. I pass. Um, and I do find that more like um, if my husband and I, for example, had both put autism in our profiles, they're more likely to swipe no for me and yes for him um, just because of our dating pools and people we'd come across. Uh, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, well, that's really I, interesting. I, I never I, thought about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if saying neurodiverse would, I feel like it would confuse a lot of the people that swipe. Um, because that is a term that unless you have been introduced to it before or you study psychology or uh, anything like that, you probably wouldn't have come across that. And you're just like, huh, what's that? And that in itself might cause people to swipe uh, in either direction. I've, I've had people who will swipe right. And the first thing they do is they're like, okay, you say you're demisexual, pansexual, polyamorous. What do all these things mean? And I'm like, bro, you own a computer. Go Google. Leave me alone. So it could go either way. But, yeah. <laughs> or how does neurodivergence and polyamorous dating maybe differ from monogamous dating? Or does it? <laughs> um, not sure how much neurodivergence has to do with it. But I feel like when I was dating my now husband, um, there was an end goal because monogamous um, relationships tend to date with the intent to marry and, you know, set up and have children, you know, the whole nine yards, yada, yada. Um, 
whereas polyamorous dating in general doesn't necessarily have any end goals. Um, um, it can, obviously, but in general, I'm not going to, I mean, I can't marry multiple people here yet. I wish that wasn't the case, but <laughs> uh, so I think that and I do know there's one person I dated for probably, probably only a month. And at, after the month, he's just like, yeah, I don't think I can hack all of this that you got going on. So bye. And he did it like overnight while I was asleep. So I woke up to these messages and oh. he had blocked me on everything. I'm like, oh, oh. all right. And for me, that was less heartache than if um, somebody I'd been dating for a longer time and, or more in a monogamous relationship had done that. Um, but again, I don't know so much if that was the neurodivergence or just polyamory in general. But yeah, that's a, I mean, a, a month good to find out early. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, rude, but <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, well, all of us can be a little much because oh, yeah. all of us have complicated lives, but I can imagine a situation where, you know, you really are attracted to the person, you really like the person, but figuring out a way to mentally and emotionally be able to be with you know, whatever their triggers or their needs, like the soup can thing, you know, it, it might be too much for somebody. It is. And that's, that's okay. Not everybody's meant to be with everybody. Right. You know, so I know one of my husband, he's got two primary love languages. One of them is physical touch and 80% of the time I don't ever want to be touched. And this initially would make for a really bad match, but our other two love languages match up perfectly. And, we're each other's person, so it works out for us, but we make it work. Uh, but not everybody's meant to be with everybody else. That's that's the awesome part. <laughs> well, in that way, it seems like polyamory actually is kind of more welcoming to um, f- folks who have like love languages that don't necessarily match because you can potentially or, or hopefully find it with another partner and get those um, filled. Now, when I say that, though, I often get kind of blowback from folks who say, but I want that love language with the one person, you know, but I want it with (laughs) all of my partners, not just one, you know? And so, and I totally get that sometimes there is just a mismatch, but, um, but I do think that polyamory lends itself well to folks who like love someone, but their love language is not the same. And yeah, exactly. It's, it's been really nice. You know, the, the two examples that you gave, um, about the soup cans and the dishwasher, you know, if you are not considering someone for a nesting partner or, you know, if you're not going to be spending a lot of time in one another's homes, who cares? It'll never exactly. come That yeah. could be something that yep. is just not a big deal in the context of that relationship. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. Those are things that matter to my husband and I, but not necessarily, you know, my boyfriends. It's, hmm. What would they care? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Acts of service, things like doing the dishes, cleaning, yard work, whatever. That is my love language. When someone does that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, I love that so much. But it 
almost exclusively uh, falls on my nesting partner because it's stuff around the house, you know, like it's like, it's like the stuff that we share together. Right. So if a boyfriend were to come in and like do my dishes or yard work, I'd be like, what are you doing? This is weird. (laughs) Don't, I mean, like, it's nice, but don't. That actually brings me back to another tick of mine is I have issues of people in my personal space. There's certain things certain people can do in my safe space and my entire house is my safe space. So uh, I think like if my boyfriend did come in and start like washing my laundry, I'd be like, uh, what the fuck? Get out right now. <laughs> I'd be weirded out. But if my husband did, actually, you know, what? if my husband did laundry, I'd probably say the same thing. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He's great. He's great. But yeah, my personal space is mine. I know we kind of covered, um, at the very least, communication, but what are some things that neurotypical folks can do to help out their neuroatypical partners? I mean, communication pieces is key, but um, understanding that to to not take things personally. It took my husband a long time to understand that my lack of wanting to cuddle or be intimate wasn't because I didn't love him or... I wanted to be with somebody else or anything like that. It was just because of my needs. I I can't do that right now. I physically can't. And the few times I tried, I thought, no, I'll just, I'll muddle through. I love him. This is my husband. He needs this. Uh, it, It was very bad for me, very traumatic. And never forcing your atypical partner to do something that they physically are uncomfortable with. I know that that's a general rule with everybody. Um, but it gets down to those little things like, well, if you love me, you'll cuddle me to sleep. No, that's not how it works for me. If I love you, I will not compromise my needs here for yours. And that's partly why Polly is just so perfect. Like my husband has a girlfriend who's all about that cuddling. So when he's in need of like a day long cuddle pile, he goes to be with her Mm -hmm. if he can scheduling, obviously, but just being understanding of your partner, not taking things personally and talking it out. In our community, we have a lot of um, open events like polysocials. Are there things that you would recommend that we do to make them more welcoming or more, you know, appropriately inclusive, less likely to trigger those kinds of panic attacks? Sure. Um, definitely keeping the ambiance pretty mellow. Uh, I I try not to dive into color psychology much, but events that happen when there's like blues and greens around as opposed to reds and blacks. Uh, I know a lot of our poly community crosses over into the kink community. Those are actually very triggering places for us to be too. Um, so that's another subject <laughs> altogether. Uh, keeping the volume down. If it is a social, maybe not having music in the background. And then as you're mingling with people, ask them if it's okay to touch them. Some people can't handle having even a handshake, but social mannerisms and upbringings will tell us to accept your handshake anyway, and we'll shake your hand. And then we will feel like that arm is just made of lead afterward, or it's on fire or something. I have a friend who hugs everybody. Don't do that. (laughs) Please don't do that. Um, So yeah, ask them if it's okay to touch them and things like that. I have felt that in the poly and in the greater like sex education community, which often is a lot of queer and poly folks, hugging seems to be um, 
I mean, normalized isn't the right word. It's like expected almost, right? Like people in this community hug, we're touchy feely. We, we love everyone. And so, (laughs) you know, like, of course you'd be okay with a hug. And I remember going to a, and this was years ago, probably like seven years ago, I went to a sexual like health and education conference called Catalyst Con in LA. And it was, my boss was paying me to go. It was great. It was like my first I don't know, quote unquote, like business trip <laughs> conference, you know, like and I got to like meet porn stars and sex bloggers. And it was oh, really, really that. cool. Um, I loved it. But I literally made myself a button that said, I'm not mean. I'm just not a hugger. Yep, <laughs> like, exactly. I knew that there'd be people just who would walk with outstretched arms towards me. And I'm like, I don't just I don't hug anyone. You know, like I yeah. love <laughs> hugging my partners. I love yeah. hugging my friends, but I don't want to hug a stranger. And I don't want to hug just like some random person that I've read their tweets. Like I just like Mm-mm, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. mean. No, just not that a hugger. button is totally fine. I've seen the ones that have the word hug and have the um X X out um, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it the like X do not smoke kind red. of yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah that's abs- for the venue you're at that was perfectly appropriate exactly uh, right. smaller events you can do it however you want but usually when I see the arms coming at me I'm just like hold up <laughs> there's this and, thing that I just heard about from um, or I watched an interview or something. Oprah used to do this thing that when someone would put their arms out, she would like interlace her fingers with their hands and then um, kind of like push them back, but in a like, hi, how are you doing kind of a way and then like yeah. drop their hands to the side so that they didn't actually touch her. <laughs> yep, exactly. I was like, well, that's a good. That's really clever. Right. It's clever. <laughs> it's it's still nice. You're like, I'm going to hold your hands and then you're not going to touch me. <laughs> the, the nice part is uh, people uh, who are neurodiverse, we've come up with some interesting tactics to keep um, additional touching away from us. We'll uh, purposely carrying around a drink, even if we're not drinking it. Oh. Um, or I will, I carry extra large purses and I will put my purse in front of me and act, use it as a barrier. I've used my husband as a barrier. Just anything we can do to, uh, or if you see somebody coming at you and you know they're going to hug you, pretend you didn't see them and run in another direction. <laughs> uh, we've come up with all sorts of interesting strategies to maintain our sanity. That's really good. That's real. That's so smart. Yeah. And necessary. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that potentially, and maybe this will be some, uh, the, the traits that we have learned from the pandemic may honestly go in one year and out the other, like, (laughs) but so many people now are like, are are you okay with the handshake? I mean, like, do you want to, do you like hugging? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and so they, I, a lot of folks now just coming out of the pandemic are, are a little bit more cautious and especially in, you know, consent focused communities and yes. will ask, but that's not everyone and that's not every community. So, yeah, it's true. It's true. You can always offer fist bumps, elbow bumps. Yeah. 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 We all had little... to get used to that last year. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. So how do relationships have to adjust? Um, I was just reading about something about like accommodating neuro atypical or neurodivergent folks and, and how any relationship, family, friends, lover, whatever, romantic or platonic um, kind of has to adjust accordingly. And what are some things that maybe you've experienced or your partners have that Um, things have had to adjust? I want to say the majority is just like in the events that we attend, Um, And that can include family events, too, like um, 
right now, and I know he's going to roast me for this later when he hears this. Um, I'm potentially talking about going to meet my one boyfriend's family um, this fall. And it sounds to me like they're just this big, loud, raucous bunch. And I'm scared to death of that because big, loud family, that's that's not me. I'm, I'm a quite small person. Um but uh, I've had partners try to take me to louder venues, places that are packed with people, and I can't, I can't do those. Uh, so they have to adjust to the, the events they can take me to, um, or the things we do at home. You know, the the cuddling thing. It kind of makes couch dates a little awkward sometimes. Um, but then and again, how they communicate and show their love and receive that love with me, It'll, it trying to think of how it would look different because I am the autistic one. So uh, all of my partners uh, show me that different communication. I, they're, they're good at keeping the sarcasm down. Mm-hmm. We're a pretty sarcastic bunch, but they're able to mostly, most of the time, recognize like when we're having a serious conversation, now's not the time to pop in some comedic relief because it will likely just hurt Amy's feelings because she's not going to, I can't just switch back and forth that easily. Um, They give me time to process things to give me space. Um, And yeah, just letting me be me. And they'll, they'll ask questions all the time. Do you need a hug? Do you need no, we call it touchy, no touchy. You need touchy, no touchy. Um, do you need space? Do you need a fan? Do you need, Oh my God, I have a pillow problem. They'll ask me if I need one of my pillows. I have like five big ass pillows in here. Do I need mm-hmm. a pillow? Do I need to lay down? And there's, they're little things, but they add up and they really show that my partners care for me. So may not be the typical acts of service, but those are my acts of service. That makes sense. You had mentioned that you have two children who are both autistic or on the spectrum in some way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I have a 15 year old and a five year old. Um, my 15 year old it's very neurotypically presenting, uh, definitely has, uh, if we were still diagnosing Asperger's, they would be diagnosed with Asperger's, uh, just some social struggles, mostly, um, nothing we haven't worked through. Theirs is pretty manageable. Uh, my Yoka son, on the other hand, his is very severe. He actually attends a full-time therapy program instead of going to school. Um, he will eventually go to school, uh, but for now... He's five, but his brain is maybe three at best. Um, so that's that's been the hardest part, um, like having a, a, well, he's almost six. So having an almost six-year-old that still needs to have a diaper change, um, that needs help feeding himself, uh, understanding that despite the fact that he's six, there's going to be food all over the floor because he can't get it all in there. Um, yeah, so they've got those different levels of needs. I have a good friend who also has a child with autism who um, is also, I think she's five. Um, And it's very interesting just to sort of hear the different ways that that can look because the spectrum is so broad and, you know, she's been reading since she was probably three or three and a half, but she also, you know, still is in diapers and, um, you know, her whole body stim 
responses are really mm-hmm. intense and they they built a um like a climbing structure yeah. in their dining room and stuck you know mattresses underneath it yep <laughs> try to make it as safe as possible for her to just be as physical as she needs to be mm-hmm. um but now that she is reaching an age where you know there's an expectation of school of some kind um and you know she is has a desire for social contact outside of her immediate family like yeah she wants to be around other kids and trying to find a space that will let her be who she is and you know still be a welcoming and safe and appropriate space and you know help her continue to grow and develop is a real challenge it is yep because autism, the way we treat kids with autism today is certainly not how it was done even 10 years ago, but more like 20 years ago, where we would just force kids to um, comply with social norms and good luck, figure it out. Or, you know, in my case, getting it, you know, getting spanked out of me, um, not in the fun way, but <laughs> um, just that that harsh discipline that comes from those previous generations of wait, you're not normal here. Let me just beat you harder with the paddle. Then that'll make you normal. Uh, No, like you said, we allow these kids to still be who they are. I love it when my son stims because he does his best thinking and his best creative work when he's stimming because his brain's able to focus. So when we flap or walk on our toes or spin or do things repetitively, that is when our brain is doing a lot of hard work. I know that when I was doing my doctoral studies, my family, they, they would tease me about it. And it was all in good jest. Um, I'm a huge Grey's Anatomy fan. I've probably watched the entire thing from start to finish a dozen times. And that's 17 seasons now. Um, but I watch it on repeat because my brain, it's, it's almost like the fuzzy part of my thoughts go to that. And I'm able to focus entirely on my work. So, uh, yes, they make fun of me and it's cute and whatever, but it's what allows me to do my best. Um, so we don't, we don't ask like my son to stop stimming or stop humming or anything like that. (laughs) Well, and I know that we've come a long way when it comes to, um, you know, like raising children or, or teaching children with autism, but do you still think that there are a lot of issues in like schooling or, therapy and counseling um again like from 20 years ago it's like probably revolutionary how much has (laughs) changed but do you see any other issues that still need to be worked on yeah there's there's still a lot of issues and most of them are just the individuals involved you can have all the policy in the world you can have all the protocol in the world but everybody's going to execute it how they want to do it or um, protocol is great, but what do you do when you're presented with a situation that's not covered by protocol? What do you do? And uh, the ideal situation is that your your brain would just go, okay, how can I keep this child safe? Mostly talking about things like aggression and tantrums and things like that. Uh, or in my son's case, elopement. He just runs, and that's very scary. No concept of safety. Um, so, for mm-hmm. example... The, the ideal situation in his behavior plan is to block his access to elopement. Oh, that sounds great. Except if we're outside, 
I cannot physically block him from like going out of a door if we're already outside. He could bolt for the road. So the one day he did bolt for the road, I grabbed his arm. Looking back at it with how fast he was running and how hard I grabbed his arm, probably could have broken his arm if I really think about it. Not a safe idea. But what was I supposed to do? You know, it's so, yes, there's going to be issues. I know a lot of teachers still don't even believe in a lot of the therapeutic approaches. Um, most of the older teachers, I don't mean to bash them. They're great. They've definitely put in their time, um, but they have that mentality. They don't like to reward children for being children. They like to discipline for stepping outside of the pretty little box. Um, so, yeah, there's always going to be issues as long as humans are involved. It really is. Right. Well, and also, you know, like you said, those teachers are, you know, they put in their time. What what they believe is going to be effective isn't necessarily what we now understand will be effective. So it's not, I imagine, usually something malicious. It's just something that doesn't work and is a bad fit. That's correct. And and more often than not, those strategies actually make things worse. Uh, so they think that they're training the child to sit still in their desk and do their work. And all they're really doing is making the child so afraid to make a peep that they just sit there and they don't end up doing their work. They just sit there and they're petrified to make a move. So they're not, and I don't believe they're malicious. Obviously there's a few out there. Again, for the most part. Yeah. For the most part. No, they're not trying to be malicious. They just, they think they know best and that's how their classroom is run. And their brain works differently. Like, I think it's interesting that like, well, like you said, normal is, you know, not a great word to use here because what is normal, it's just different. But a a typical neurotypical people think, well, I'm the default. I'm the normal person. So you need to align with what I do and how I work and how I operate. And that's just not the case. It's just different. And their brain does not work the same way. Right. It's true. And what's interesting is my husband and I were talking this past week about uh, atypical brains and trying to determine, I think they might actually be the quote unquote default. (laughs) They don't, I I hate to say they don't give a crap. They don't give a crap. We don't give a crap as much. And I'm mostly talking about like my son who's being raised in the newer uh, therapeutic manner, but he doesn't care if taking the toy from another kid makes that kid sad. He just wants that toy, but that's kind of basic human behavior. So I'm kind of wondering if he's the normal one here and everybody else is not, I'm just playing, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Or I wonder also what the prevalence of atypical like brains is. And if it's actually way more than we think, I mean, even just identifying autism is relatively new, especially in the, you know, history of medical science. And so a lot of folks, you know, they'll say, oh, well, there are so many more autistic kids than there ever were. And it's like, yeah, because we know what it is now. (laughs) Of course there is. We know what it is. And now we've got um, adults raising kids who are in this, um, we're taking our kids to be evaluated more. We're not Mm -hmm. just beating our kids into submission and hoping that they turn out quote unquote normal. We're, we're noticing red flags earlier and earlier. We now know that, um, and I used the, the words girls and boys very, very loosely and biologically here, that they present differently. The way I present with autism is not the way if I had had a twin brother that he would have presented with autism. And 
we're starting to see that. And that's allowing us to diagnose girls earlier. It's allowing us to even see like my son's red flag started when he was four months old. Now, would anybody else have seen that? Somebody that wasn't studying psychology? I don't know. I, you know, that's when I was starting my studies. So I was on like high alert. Um, But definitely by the time he was one, it was more than obvious to anybody that interacted with him that there was some form of cognitive delay going on. Um, But that's, that's just one of those things that the new style of parenting also teaches you. Um, When he was six months old, for example, his grandfather would not let him have his bottle until he said the word, Bubba, my son is nonverbal, mind you. And he always has been. Um, So it just ended up in this mat, this screaming match where my son is screaming because he's hungry. He wants the bottle and the grandfather literally holding the bottle three feet away from him and refusing to give it to him because he wouldn't comply with what he was asked. That's the old style. New style is, yeah, I don't do that. (laughs) I don't abuse my kids. (laughs) Yeah, that's abuse. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that grandfather is no longer around. So, (laughs) yeah everything's healthy here now. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, and that's kind of the price that ends up getting paid when it comes to older individuals and not, and sometimes age doesn't even matter. People who just don't understand or don't want to mm-hmm. understand willing, willingly ignorant kind of folks who don't care, yep. care. They just don't care. Yep. Those folks don't get to have access to those, you know, individuals anymore because it's no. like, you're no longer safe. Exactly. And I, and I, we've cut out most of our biological family uh, for that reason. Or for example, my teenager is trans. They're, you know, not on board with that or the polyamory. That's always a hot topic. So for whatever reason, most of our biological family is now cut out of our lives. But I do know most people are struggling with that. Like, I don't want to, that's my mom. I don't want to cut her out. Well, is she toxic? Does she support you? Well, if the answer is, yeah, she's toxic, you need to cut that out. You need to be healthy for yourself. And and for me, being healthy for my kids means not having their grandparents around who make comments about short buses and licking windows. Yeah, yeah, it's that bad. Yeah. Uh, and that's not what they need. They need support. They need... Yeah, how does that help anybody? I mean, it doesn't. It's just... And, <sighs> I don't, again, I don't think it's malicious. I think they think they're being funny or cute or making light of a situation that is very serious. Um, none of that is funny or cute, you know, right. it's just not so. Yeah, I have a couple, there are a couple uh, people in our life who who do make these really insensitive jokes because they're just like, well, I'm just pushing buttons. I just like to, you know, I'm just edgy. And it's like, no, it's not cool. And the more you do it, the less likely I will ever be around you. So exactly. You know, you're not, old man. you're not edgy, really... you're an asshole. Yeah, it's just being an yes. asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So what is your book about? Oh, well, <laughs> it's it's kind of going over a more detailed version of everything we talked about today, um, navigating that neurodivergence. And I'm going to take both sides of it, too, getting input from my partners, from other people in the poly community who have partners who are atypical uh, because I know my story's not going to match literally anybody else's. So I kind of want to get everybody's input on that um, and just kind of showing how you can support a partner who's atypical, how you can take the onus on yourself to communicate with your partners about your own self being atypical and just kind of, I'm, I'm going to look at those different dynamics, atypical with atypical, atypical with neurotypical, 
all, all those different clicks. And then the love languages are going to be huge because even though the, the five love languages are going to be the same, how they are interpreted to an atypical person are very different. So I'm just kind of going to keep it to that in a basic sense. And if there's a demand for it, we'll go deeper. I absolutely will go deeper, but I'm just going to keep it basic. We've had um, another guest who's talked about wanting to come back and, and address some of these issues. And I think it might be really fun to have another episode um, maybe, you know, when your book launches and set, maybe have you and um, uh, Maria, you know, maybe both talking about like, what is it like to, you know, be in these relationships and like kind of offer a multiplicity of perspectives for folks to kind of better be able to have an empathetic imagination. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And different how different <laughs> styles of, of polyamory work with um, like neurodivergence. Cause like Maria is solo poly and you have a nesting partner uh, and you're a, you have I a husband do. and maybe that would, maybe that makes a difference. <laughs> it, it might. And uh, we practice kitchen table and we're relationship anarchists. So uh, and, uh, that's not for everybody. I have mm-hmm. a couple of metamors who have zero interest in kitchen table and that's fine. That's I, that's them. They can do their own thing. Um, but we do here. So yeah, that's different for everybody. Well, I think something that we actually didn't mention though, it, it has a lot to do with everything we've been saying today is like respecting other people's boundaries and communicating boundaries. Oh, and I yeah. feel like that is so much probably heightened, so much more heightened um, in um, when it comes to triggers and stuff. Like you, I, I would say those are boundaries. They, yes, absolutely. And it could be a, a literal boundary, like a physical one. Like when I come home from work, having a little bit of space before you stop bombarding me with things, that would be great. Uh, kids don't exactly roll with that. But uh, my husband knows that you can't just like start firing off questions to me when I walk through the door. You have to give me time because we, and when I say we, I, the neurodiverse individuals, we don't transition very smoothly and easily. It takes us a hot minute to switch from work brain to home brain or from wife brain to mother brain and trying to do that all at once. Um, and then there's, yeah, there's the other boundaries like, um, you know, the, like the hugging. Yeah. And the hugging. Oh my goodness. The hugging. Um, but also having my personal space, like don't, come up into my office and I don't know, start rearranging things like that. Mm-hmm. So that will I would lose my shit if somebody did that to me. So, right. And as far as yeah. I know, I'm pretty neurotypical. <laughs> Although when you said something about the, like the dishwasher being uh, put together in the, in the right way, I was like, Oh, I feel like almost everyone has a specific way they want to load the dishwasher and it's always <laughs> different. And I'm always amazed when I see other people doing like, what I assume is wrong, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For exactly. Them, it's right, I think we but... all, I think we all figure out that uh, the way we load the dishwasher has to be the most efficient way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but not just, I think the only difference there would be add physical pain mm-hmm. and the, the fiery nerves to seeing the dishwasher loaded differently. So um, my teenager is mostly in charge of dishes here. I make it a point to not, watch <laughs> they'll, they'll do the dishes like after i've gone to bed at night 
because I can't watch that process. It actually causes me pain. So <laughs> that's nothing right. against my teenager. It's just not the way I would do things in my space. Whereas I would just be like annoyed or confused. It's never going to cause me yeah. pain. I'll be like, well, they're going to get clean, I suppose. You're just doing and, it really weird. Yep. And what's <laughs> interesting is one of my partners has the exact same dishwasher I have. And I have watched his husband load the dishwasher before, and it's never bothered me. It's clearly specific to my personal oh. space is what I figured out. Because I was watching the loading of the dishwasher, and I'm like, why is this not hurting? Why am I like okay with him putting a, a mug where I know a plate could be, but it wasn't mine. It wasn't my mug. It wasn't my dishwasher. It wasn't my home. So not my monkey, capable. not my circus. Like exactly. you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> exactly. So, so we are adaptable in some aspects. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, we covered a lot today. So I think this was a great episode. Uh, is there anything else, any other topic that you want to cover or uh, bring up or just let us yeah know for next time or whatever <laughs> or anything that we forgot to talk about that you wanted to make sure we covered you know i don't think so i think we covered most of it today because i feel like communication is such an umbrella for every aspect whether you're in a relationship with someone who's neurotypical or i'm sorry neurodivergent or you are the neurodivergent one or both <laughs> uh just talking to each other um not being afraid to hurt each other's feelings that's always my thing it's like the way I communicate can hurt feelings and they will hurt feelings. And I have to acknowledge that, but I can't also alter the way I communicate. I just have to watch what I'm doing and apologize if I overstep, but also my partners understand that that's just me. It's not actually, you know, malice, but um, yeah, communicate. And I think that's probably something that, I mean, maybe it would take a little while to adapt to as a neurotypical person, but like you really could, like you could get, this isn't personal. This isn't about me. This isn't mm -hmm. intended to hurt me. And when you really get that, like it, you know, it takes the, the hurtfulness out or substantially reduces it. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they go into communication or debate or heated discussions with their partners, they come at it from almost an attacking point like my side versus your side. And they forget that they're in it together. They're partners. Like if I'm having a discussion with you about anything, I don't care how big or small the, the topic may be, we're just going through it together. So I'm not saying something to attack you or belittle you. I'm talking to you about it because this is a problem and we need to work through it together. So. Totally. Good advice. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for being our guest and for messaging me and asking to be on the show. Yeah. Thanks Absolutely. for having me. And I'm here if you need anything else. <laughs> we really appreciate your contribution. I think this is going to be really helpful to folks. So yeah. Thanks again. Yes. And let us Thank know you. when you publish your book, we will uh, talk about it on the, on the pod. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, cool. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. 
contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.